wonderful listeners, and welcome to another episode of Pop Screen, the Geek Show podcast about the good, the bad, and the befuddling of movies, either starring by or about pop stars. I know the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a filmmaker and a critic for the Geek Show, and horrified the British horror website. And I can be found on Letterboxd at Graham Williamson. I'm joined this week by. Uh, by Mark Cunliffe. I'm also at the Geek Show, and we are cult, and I can also be found on Letterboxd. Um, just look for Mark Cunliffe. And what else have I done? Uh, write for Arrow, Arrow Film, Arrow Academy, Arrow Video, and I've got a chapter in Scarred for Life, Volume 2. Indeed. This week, listeners, Mark and I are checking our privilege, specifically our BFI flipside Blu-ray of Privilege by Peter Watkins, a film that came out in 1967 and has had its cult kept alive by a dedicated band of followers who were not put off by the fact that the film was so obscure that at one point Watkins complained that Universal Studios would not let him have a copy of his own film. Not a 35 millimeter like print that could be screened not that kind of copy he just wanted a vhs of it wow and they wouldn't even give him that unbelievable it would be fair to say that watkins has had a tricky career wouldn't it oh definitely yeah yeah but to actually like go cap in hand for your own you know yeah your own body of work is strange, wasn't it? It's a bit like um, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, isn't it? When they got wind of um, the junking of stuff in the seventies, you know, oh, all, yes. where they, they learned that not only but also much of it was slated to be wiped. I think Peter Cook did actually say, "Well, just give me the discs, then." Yeah. No, we can't do that. It's BBC property. Incredible. Well, can you not sort of transfer it across to one of these newfangled VHS tapes? No, can't do that either. And yet, if any YouTuber has published a book, they have like a, at least a 10 deep stack of unsold copies of it behind them in every video. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I'm just checking if we've got any books. <laughs> I, when I publish something, I will, I promise you, I will have that stack in the background. We're just missing that, aren't we? That's what we need. It just, we just. <laughs> teetering upwards there like that <laughs> yeah Watkins was doing this off the back of a couple of projects that had not gone well I mean one of them famously uh, was the war game which mm. got made and is great um, and then got banned in perhaps the most spectacular circumstances that any British television broadcast has got banned in my opinion uh, which is that Havold Wilson watched it and said, Jesus Christ, there's no way you're putting that out. <laughs> is that exactly what he said, though? <laughs> I would like to think so. Was, I'd like that. Yeah. Jesus Christ, Mary, come and have a look at this. Fred <laughs> horses. Harold Wilson impressions, kids. That's what you come here for, isn't it? <laughs> It's, it's good now John Sessions has left us. It's good that someone can keep that afloat. No, because I'll start doing Stella Street impressions. Oh. Now you <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> I tend to happen about eight. I open in G. <laughs> it's weird how much influence Stella Street still has. Like, brilliant show. Yeah, uh, whenever I think of Dirk Borgas, uh, I should think of Death in Venice. I should think of Victim. Uh, what I actually think of is John Sessions going, I thought your mother said you en- she enjoyed the gambling ambiance. <laughs> mine is when uh, he goes to complain to Mick and Keith that he's not got the lady. He's got mojo. <laughs> <laughs> Keith's going, it's the distributors. It's not our fault, it's the distributors. Sessions is Keith Richards is a work of art. It's like like Phil Cornwell's voice, one of those impersonations that everyone does, but they just made it their own. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. We've already gone off on a tangent, haven't we? Wildly, yes. (laughs) But... It's music. It's pop music. It's rock music. It's the 60s. And that's kind of where and we're at I here with privilege. Think, to drag it back, I think that when Universal Studios hired Watkins to make a film about rock music starring Paul Jones from Manfred Mann, they were probably expecting something a bit more like a bunch of rock stars live on a suburban street rather than what they got. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know the background of this film very well. All the, only that it's um, from a story by Johnny Spate, who of course yes. wrote uh, "Till Death Is Do Parts" and "Legend yeah. of Sickness and Health," and a really intriguing uh, play called, um, which the, the ITV did twice, once in the sixties and once again in the seventies, called "If There Weren't Any Blacks, You'd Have to Invent Them." I was hoping you'd mention if there weren't any blacks, you'd have to invent them. <laughs> People do not know about that, and it is very, very easy. It's the sort of thing yeah. where, I mean, occasionally there is still a, d- a debate, a silly debate, in my opinion, about how much Till Death Us Do Part was a satire of bigotry or an example of it. And I think once you've seen where space is coming from in that play, you realise exactly what his politics were. Yeah, I mean, and also this film as well, you can see they're just mountain piles of evidence that immediately crushes any of those idiots who go, oh, you can't put out an attorney these days, the woke brigade won't have it, or, (laughs) you know, that kind of... But you could call call people anything you wanted. No, we were all having a laugh at each other, you know, that crap. Back in the good old days, of course, Peter Watkins (laughs) had to fight tooth and nail to get stuff like this put out. Uh, The J. Arthur Rank organisation, who before they became rhyming slang, were... uh... (laughs) The the webcam is slightly too low res for that. It just looked like a hummingbird flew past the camera. Yeah, that's it. Oh, seductive. Yeah. (laughs) This is crap for this for the audio only. Yeah, but gold if you're watching on video, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Could be more gold if you put it out on Patreon as well. (laughs) Blimey, I don't want to think what you'd have for the Patreon (laughs) listeners. We haven't got an OnlyFans yet. Maybe this would be the ideal time to launch it. 
Now you're talking. <laughs> but yes, uh, the J. Arthur Vanka organisation, back when they were one of Britain's largest cinema chains, refused to show this film on account of, and I wow. quote, its immoral nature. Really? That's it. Wow. That was the reason. What is there that's remotely immoral about this film? Well, the thing with Watkins, I mean, you, you look at his career and it is the, the worst case scenario for a political filmmaker. It's very easy. And I, I know we have both done it many times, often on this show, to look back at British film and television of the 60s and 70s and go, oh, they had Ken Loach, they had Ken Russell, they had Alan Clark. What a golden age. You could do anything. But you've still got someone like Watkins who tried to do radical things and just hit wall after wall after wall. wall. After wall. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And I mean, it's not even like he's the enfant terrible of, uh, of, of this sort of no uh, movement, really. He's not, he's not Ken Russell, you know. He's just a very good, interesting filmmaker who picks topics that were perhaps just no-go areas at the time you know nuclear war at the time of the cold war it's always going to be a hard sell really, yeah isn't it um but yeah it's strange because and it probably explains why he's still quite little known really yeah because after this he he did two films with universal he did this and another science fiction feature called the gladiators and i think he, he only had one more film uh, in America, which was the very famous Punishment Park. Punishment Park, brilliant film. Uh, he only did that before he became more of an international director. And mm. some of his European films are great. I am a huge fan of Edvard Monk. I think that's one of the great films about art history. Yeah. But it's four and a half hours long and that's not his longest film by any means so it's like you watch that i'll watch monk the detective with ocd instead <laughs> and you'll probably get finished first won't you probably will yeah <laughs> and that seems to go on forever but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah i must admit difficult it's only really yes yeah but i must admit it's only really his his early work that I know of, really. Mm. Um, I think anything after Punishment Park, I genuinely don't think I've seen. But nothing's jumping to my mind that I may have seen after Punishment Park, really. I don't want to get bogged down in the Edvard Monk film um, <laughs> because I could talk about it all day, but there is one bit in it that I think is illustrative of why Watkins fought for this approach to filmmaking and what the use of it is. Because you you know how every single biopic about a groundbreaking artist, doesn't matter whether it's Picasso, Stravinsky, you know, anyone, there's always a bit where, which is the worst bit in the film, without fail, where some snobby art critic looks down his pince nez at Le Demoiselle's Davin Yon goes, her eyes are on the wrong side of her face. You'll <laughs> never sell this, Pablo. And it's <laughs> rubbish. It's Oh, shit. But Watkins works in this sort of mock documentary way, and he likes to cast amateurs. And for the Edvard Monk film, 
he simply cast real-life Norwegians who hated Edvard Munch's paintings, and he put them in period costume, and he got them to look at the camera and explain exactly what it was that they hated about these paintings. And so the scene is completely believable in a way that no other artistic biopic can match. Because you get an honest reaction as opposed to uh, scripted cliches. Yeah. 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 And I think that there is an element of always going for the honest reaction Mm. that's sort of a thread that runs through his work, perhaps, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Nothing feels. um, I don't think we call it social realism. I don't think. Because it deals in. Kind of Brechtian realism, isn't it? You're meant yeah. to think that it's real, but you're not meant to think it's like a window into another room, as you are with the sort of Lochley kind of social yeah. realism. You're meant to be very aware of the artifice of it. Yeah, but at the same time, the very um, recognisable characters, uh, it's amateur acting you know the, the using amateurs uh, rather than professional actors uh even this i mean you've got it's a strange sort of uh cast isn't it you've got paul jones uh mm. singing with manfred Mann, who did go on to be a bit of an actor didn't he but the, uh, i think this might have been his first role perhaps uh, so he's quite was, untested yeah. mm. uh, and then you know common Common sense, common consensus would prevail that you've got an untested, unknown quantity as your leading man. Uh, his leading lady, therefore, should be somebody with a bit of chops around, and maybe you get uh, Vanessa Redgrave or, or or something, somebody like that. Yeah. Charlotte Ramplin, no, Jean Shrimpton, yes. sweet Jean Shrimpton, <laughs> the shrimp, yeah, the most the glamorous herself. person ever to be named after an unimpressive sea crustacean. <laughs> Uh, there is a lovely sentence in Roger Ebert's review of this from when it came out, uh, where he says that Shrimpton had, and I quote, something of Julie Christie in her performance. Not much, but something. <laughs> it's, it's an indie, but again, it's 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 real. It's, yeah. it's a real performance because it's just it's it's like you say they've gone to somebody and said you act as authentically as you can to that. Mm. And she doesn't seem to be acting. And I don't think it's that she doesn't seem to be acting because she can't act. It's just there's something very um, naive about her uh, yes. and, and authentic about her, her screen persona that makes it quite an interesting concept. But a wild um, choice, really, to put two mm. unknowns, unknown quantities i should say yes uh, unknown as actors in, as actors yeah mm-hmm. uh in a film when you know you you hope that your film would be a bankable project you know? well i suppose i can see where watkins and universal are kind of at cross purposes here because watkins is as we say doing his usual thing of trying to make the film appear more real by casting people who really have these opinions who really do this work you know make everything as close to the character as possible whereas from universal's standpoint what he's doing is casting a rock star as a rock star which you know is also risky but it's much more commercial it has a very good commercial track record even as early as 1969 seven yeah rather. yeah yeah and it's like you say you know they probably expected another 
hard day's night or something yeah. like that the same way that um a couple of years later performance oh this will just be a, a fun little romp <laughs> with the rolling stones in <laughs> i imagine Anything that but. with no disrespect to johnny spade who you know it, I've, I've made it clear how much i admire him but um yeah. I suspect that before Watkins started reassembling this script to fit his usual sort of full documentary style, I imagine this was a slightly more brightly coloured, digestible kind of satire. It was something that you, you could watch and not feel implicated, I guess. Yeah, yeah, because it's a film that very much points the finger. Mm. And everybody, doesn't it? You know, yeah. we are all sort of involved in this. Even, even you know, even if your only uh, culpability is that you're a sheep, you know, mm. we're all complicit some in some way or another in building this uh, this performer up to the status and ranks that he becomes. Um, yeah, I could imagine Spates is a little bit more satirical anarchic comedic um, more of a sort of entertainment kind of satire rather than a really lacerating thing perhaps yeah it would be it the only thing I, I watched it again the other day the only thing I could, that kept coming back to me as I was watching it was um it's almost like a, a, a sort of lost sibling to V for Vendetta Mm, you know, in the sense, yes. it's this kind. It's the same kind of um, world that it inhabits, isn't it? We and should... by that I mean more of Alan Moore's actual yeah, graphic yeah. novel, not the uh, the not too bad film version. But yeah, I, I watched it. Great, I watched that recently for an episode of our sister show, Behold, and it angered me much, much less than I remembered. It's got right, some good stuff right. in. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to they're hard to do, aren't they? But yeah. I mean, but of that, it's it feels very much of that Britain. Yeah, you know the sort of England prevails uh, sign off that you often that you hear in V for Vendetta. You could imagine that being spoken at any minute in this film. Yeah, um, we should... even down to the whole uh, the the weird kind of um, there's a bit where they say. It, Stephen Stephen's Mind Palace is it called or something mm -hmm. Palace, which is like just a consumer world of things that he is sort of like advertising. Yeah, and shoppers go there, and they're all British made products because it's you know it's, you're trying to boost British economy, um, which isn't a million miles away from what they were doing at the time. With I'm back in Britain, so there yeah. is that satire of it again. Yeah. Yeah, we should we should explain a little of the world that Stephen Chaucer, the character that Paul Jones plays, is inhabiting here, because uh, we see him in a scene which gives you very little impression of how this world is different. He is introduced in this ticker tape parade and the voiceover, yeah. which, as usual in Watkins' films, is done by Watkins, just reels off this list of absolutely astonishing success he's had. He advertises everything. He's the biggest pop star in the world. He has, you know, contacts and fans everywhere. He's like all of the Beatles rolled into one. Mm. And then you start to see some of the things 
that he actually does. And that I think the first like glimpse we see of him after that ticket tape parade, the first glimpse we see of his actual work is that concert he does where he's singing Set Me Free. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is, yeah. And um see, I'd forgot because it's been it's been about 10 years since I last watched this, and I forgot that he was supposed to be um a Rolling Stones type bad boy at the start mm. of the film, for want of a better word. Um, because it's funny, as, as, he, as I put it on, I'm watching it, and I'm, you're seeing him on that, that presidential-style ticker tape parade, and he's waving to people, you think, I remembered where the film goes. I'm thinking, yes, Paul Jones is perfect casting because there's nothing sexual about him. Mm. Not that he's not a good-looking man or anything like that, but you never got that... Um, there's nothing sort of feral about him in the way that Jagger is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. There's no... So I thought, yes, that's perfect casting. And you can see why he's sort of like um, a soldier of Christ in pop mm. form. Uh, because, you know, he's got that angelic kind of look and he's very asexual. He's not intimidating or threatening. You know, you would let your daughter go out with, <laughs> with Paul Jones, you know. Yes. And then it did a complete 360 on me by saying that, you know, he... He's been in prison, and they never explain what that prison sentence was. But then they sort of reenact it mm. in the concert, don't they? So it's sort of like it's almost as if. Do you remember that dreadful Plan B, the defamation of Strickland Banks? Oh yeah, it's yes, like a, yeah. a concept album about a rapper who goes to prison or something like that. Yeah, um, it's almost as if it's that in concert form, but rather than being some fat cockney pretending to have had that <laughs> life, we're actually supposed to believe that the, the character of Stephen Shorter has had that life and now he's replicating it for entertainment purposes. You've you've said something there that uh, I've seen this film a couple of times now and it hasn't quite clicked with me yet, but you're right. You never find out what Shorter went to prison for. And I'm no. wondering now after you've said it, whether it's meant to be a kind of a, you know, is it part of the subterfuge? Was he sent to prison to build up his bad to boy build credentials up, yeah, so that when he became a propaganda one, artist, everyone will think, oh, well, you know, it can't be propaganda. It's coming from the bad boy, Stephen Shorter, you know, the anti-establishment guy. Yeah, that's interesting. That I hadn't thought of that actually, but yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because you do kind of think it could just be a made-up backstory that sort of yeah. attracts the the populace to him. Um, the, I mean, it's clearly taking its cues from um, the Stones, isn't it? Whether the it's either bust. the drug bust or just even just pissing it outside a garage in Cheshire or whatever it was they were done for. You know, it's clearly something that that suggests that kind of bad boy image but yeah I hadn't thought of that that's interesting and it is very interesting that as you say that they choose this pop star who has a sort of rebellious image because even back in the 60s when rock and roll was still a thing that annoyed your parents you know you still had people like Pat Boone and Cliff Richards, who mm. had a more sort of conformist, conservative kind of angle to their work. 
Stephen Sharp is, could have been one of them. Absolutely. This is clear. I mean, from, again, if we went back to what Spate's original vision might have been, it's clearly a piss take of Cliff Richard, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah. Cliff Richard's the uh, the Christian uh, pop star. Uh, you know, if if the government, interestingly, a coalition government, mm. which when I watched it back in 2011, 2012, um, that was <laughs> shit. You know, yes. <laughs> we've got one of those. <laughs> Rather like, I think, the moment uh, around the same time I rewatched Terry Gilliam's Brazil and I had never paid as much attention to the fact that the government in Brazil have the slogan, we're all in this together. Yeah, yeah, that is spooky, Yikes. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I forgot what I was going to say now. But yeah, the... Um, the coalition government. Yeah, they end I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of branching off into two here that I shouldn't be doing. I should stick on one furrow and <laughs> stay with it, but I won't, and I'll get confused, so bear with me. Um, but the government of... And the ch- with the church have um, seized upon Stephen and said, right, this is going to be our figurehead, our emblematic thing to, to quell uh, and mm. control the population and their interests and their uh, the pound in their pocket and all that kind of stuff. Because Every- everything is just, it's a, it, it's, he's a singer, he's a idol, he's a, you know, a, um, a figure cool. to look up to. A role model. He's mm. he, he's he's selling things, you know. Uh, so it's all all in one, isn't it? So this that's the way they control him. But it's this. It's a coalition government which struck me as odd at the time when I first watched it. Yeah. Now we don't have a coalition government, but the interesting thing is it says that the coalition was formed because there was no longer any recognisable difference between the Tories and the Labour Party. And Christ, we've got that with Keir Starmer, haven't we? <laughs> I was, when I rewatched it, I actually noted that. I was going to note that down and I thought, no, I bet Mark will notice that, actually. I don't think I'm I bet gonna... the raving communist is going to say something about this. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. It's, it's uncanny in that way. And I think when that it's... line comes in, it's very interesting because that line comes in at the point where he has this big rally in a sports stadium with lots yeah. of, uh, it, you know, it is most explicitly Christian performance, but it's also got a lot of kind of Lenny Riefenstahl style. Very much so, staging. yeah, because they're all doing the, mm. the salute. They've got the um, Union Jack armbands, haven't they, which are, are worryingly uh, suggestive of um, yeah. but it's interesting Reich. that. Burning crosses as well. Oh, they do. They have burning crosses, yeah. But that's interesting. That's an interesting thing because it's the first thing that they do that is overtly dystopian in the sense of this is not something that is happening in 1960s Britain. For the preceding hour or so of the film, all of this massive propaganda power and massive government power is dedicated towards just keeping society as it was, yeah. which is a, an interesting and kind of, it's subtle distinction, isn't it? I think people can find dystopias very easy to shrug off if it's like, a, you know, a, a sinister world where everyone with brown eyes is sent to a re-education camp or some bollocks. Yeah, but yeah. when you have this absolutely despotic power 
geared towards just making things a bit cosy and safe and old time yeah. British. That's they just disturbing. want you to buy the same tin of beans that you've bought for the past 20 years. There's something quite yeah. eerie about that, isn't it? You know, definitely. Yeah. Or maybe just buy another and, and buy two tins of, of the same beans, not just one, you know, just mm. to keep everything going. Is is it it's low key, but it's it's unsettlingly low key, isn't it? But I think you've hit the nail on the head though when you say like it's that's when it gets very um dystopic and you think mm. you realize, oh, we're not you know, we are just moments into the future, perhaps. We, we are witnessing the slide of fascism as opposed to being in some sort of slightly alternate 1967 or something. Mm. Um, and that's where I think you've hit, there when you said about what's the difference between what Watkins did when he took over the the story to, to as opposed to what Spate did. Because I think Spate is very much mocking um, the sort of, proto Simon Cowell media manipulation yeah. thing, but at the same time taking pot shots at his favourites, the church, the government. Um, I don't think he'd have gone to that dystopic vision or in the same way did, that Watkins did. If he did, I bet Spate would have done it much earlier and had the whole thing be slightly removed from reality. I think yeah. for all of Spake's ingenuity, I don't think he would look at like 1960s consumer society and think this is a form of fascism. But that absolutely yeah. is Watkins' is kind Watkins of world. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, one of the things that watching it back that jumps out to me, I think, yeah, that's Spate, is um, the, the, the sort of for want of a better word, popping up of traditional hymns. Yes. Like, on the Christian soldiers uh, and um, Jerusalem. I but mean, on the Christian soldiers in particular, with them dressed as monks playing there and having, um, having the various members of the church sort of like nodding the heads to it and, and, and others being a bit appalled by it as well. That seems to be quite spate. Yeah. Definitely. And I think when we talk about privilege as a satire that implicates you, um, one of the things that I find most disturbing is that that Mersey Beat version of Onward Christian Soldiers fucking bangs. I love that song. Isn't it brilliant? I'll be honest. Like I say, I watched it again yesterday and it's been in my head for like yeah. 24 hours now it's brilliant it's so good yeah it really is um the music of privilege uh has a bit more of an afterlife than you'd expect for a film that was essentially buried because that song that uh, Paul Jones sings at the start, Set Me Free, was covered by Patti Smith on her album Easter. Did not know that. There oh. is a very good liner note that she wrote in the album, uh, which I, I think is remarkably insightful and very poetic, but she wrote... Uh, this is the title track from the John Heyman, Peter Watkins production of the film Privilege, a movie that merged the rock martyr Paul Jones with all the sacristal images of the 60s, the cross, the Christ, the whip and the lashes that served to veil velvet weeping balls, the eyes of Gene Shrimpton. 
Wow. Yeah, that is a good liner note. That makes you feel kind of redundant as a reviewer, really, doesn't yeah. it? Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that says it all, really, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's... I can't follow that. No. Um... <laughs> there is this element of, of poetry in the film, and I think there is... One of the reasons why I think if it was given a chance, this might have had a, a, an audience outside of Watkins' usual admirers is that the love story between Jones and Gene Shrimpton, for all their limitations as actors, it does feel like it has a kind of tragic quality. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, it's... um, Yeah, they're, they're just very believable. mm and okay, <laughs> we we know as, as as I'm sure we've discussed before on this podcast, and you've certainly discussed with other co-hosts as well. Uh, I guess is that um, it's hard, you know, it, it's difficult for a pop star to suddenly say, "Right now, emote," you know, yeah. <laughs> emote in a way that isn't just standing on stage going, uh, you know, or or, yeah. or or pleading into the microphone to actually emote in a sort of recognizable manner that won't come off eggy or um you know uh, wooden or anything like that it is difficult and paul jones makes a good fist of it really mm. i mean i don't think i'm ever aware of I, I, I don't think i'm ever um unaware of the fact that he's that he's a singer and a musician mm. um acting as opposed to an actor who will sing you know um but so, but he has got the hardest role, really, because he's got yeah. to—he's got to be—he's—he's the one who's got to say what's going on yeah. and what depths of despair his character is plummeting to, whereas she's got to just react to them, um, and, which she does very well. As I say, there's a naivety to to the way she does it, but you always get the feeling that she she does care for him and she does want to help yeah. him. Um, she just gets—you know—she gets to stand there and look stunned and teary, uh, as opposed to having to actually vocalise the pain that, that the character's feeling, which is his job. And they got some very sniffy reviews at the time, but I think ultimately when Jones is inarticulate, it's when the character is inarticulate and when Shrimpton is kind of blank and vacant, it's because the character is kind of blank and vacant. And it's yeah, like, I mean, the gauche presences, yeah, but yeah. the gauche characters... Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I mean, cast her to play Hedda Gabler, but I think everything she does in here is both intentional and correct. Yeah, I mean, Stephen Shorter is a character by his very definition who is supposed to be inarticulate. He's got mm. a skill, he can sing. Yeah. But other than that, he's a lump of clay that's being manipulated by other people. I mean, there's nothing there to him, is it? He is the blank canvas that other yeah. people paint upon. I mean, her, Jean Shrimpton's character's um, painting becomes this blank canvas almost. It's just, there's no features when she's painting him, is there? Because she doesn't see a person there at first. And there's a great introductory shot where um, it's not long, it's either just before the concert footage where he's singing Set Me Free or it's... Mm after the concert footage and they're all sat around at some sort of um i think it's uncle julie's birthday party is it 
Uncle Julie, we've got to be really careful with because, um, you know, because of if you try to make that character now, then you're going to get like, you're going to get labelled an anti-Semitic, aren't you? It, do you know where Uncle Jubilee came from? There is actually sure. a story behind this guy. Um, they watched a documentary called Lonely Boy about Paul Anker. And All he right, really yeah. did have an Uncle Jubilee. He's one of those. I mean, he is one of the showbiz types that you see in a lot of rock movies. You know, there's yeah. a character in Expresso Bongo who's exactly the kind yeah. of... Jewish wheeler dealer with a sentimental yeah. streak who loves his yeah. old mum. As you say, it is it he was very close to the wind at some point. Yeah. You but couldn't do it now. You know you definitely could not do it now. Yeah, I think it's that's uh, I think it's supposed to be his birthday party, isn't it? Mm. And they're all sat around at a table. And uh, they pick a picture up of uh, Stephen. And as they lift the picture up. The glare of the lights hit his face. The picture, the pictures, the face of him on the picture. Yeah. And so at, the, at that precise moment, all you see is a body and a sort of white orb. And yeah. again, that just strikes me straight away as like, this is a man who is just nothing. You know. Yeah. He's every, he only exists from what those people are creating him and presenting him to be. And then the the orb sort of the the picture moves a bit and the orb goes away. And you see, like Uncle Julie, I think it is smiling, happy, whatever. And he looks visibly pained. Yeah. As a character, he's, he's sort of like, you know, he's, he's he's he he doesn't know how to. And that that thread follows through. There's a lot of the big blown up pictures of him um, at the concerts and in the is it is it a Dream Palace? It's, yes, Dream Palace. Something like that, isn't Mind it? Mind Palace is, is it's when, Sherlock, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> when when they have a bit where Benedict Cumberbatch has to think, so he just like flicks his hands around like he's Spider-Man or something. I'm just doing that again. <laughs> Day after round. Yeah. What a nonsense. weird creative decision. That was. It's just it's like, hey, Sherlock has been been existing for centuries. What should we do? Oh, well, we'll start saying he's got a mind palace. But I can go on for ages slagging off Stephen Moffat and Mark Gattis, so I'll try not to do that. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, in the dream palace, these big blown-up pictures of him, there's always something slightly awry in how he looks. That is, It's almost like... Um, it's like, you know, we used to see those, um, like, at, at the time of the Gulf War, when they put, like, uh, captured soldiers on television, and yeah. they were blinking. And yeah. the blinks are, are SOS signals. Yeah. Uh, it, it, there's something there. It, it's very much, it is free me. It's very, it's, it's very much, like, set me free. Get me, mm. get me, a, you know, but in the only way he knows how. There's, there's something always pained in every single photograph of him which you don't see in rock stars photos do you, there, you know. it reminds me a bit of you you saw that asif kapadia documentary about diego maradona yeah 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 did you not think that no matter what age he was every time he was in a crowd or in a public appearance there was always a terror in his looks eyes. utterly terrified, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, he really does. Yeah, that is true. For a man who um, was loved by millions and co- seemed to court a lot of that love, 
You definitely well. never thought of him as an unconfident man. I certainly no. didn't until I saw then, that film. Yeah, it's like you say, the crowd around me is like, yeah, it's, it's a look of sheer rabbit in the headlights terror, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that those pictures aren't quite as intense as that, but it's one of those that I think what Watkins tries to get us to do is say, right, because they're not always touched upon. I mean, you could... I mean, I know one of my one of my pictures here has got a white orb there, like that. You could see that, then the then the frame moves, and you just go, "Oh, mm. okay, you know, it's just trick of the light sort of thing." But then it's asking you to sort of consider it, and maybe you won't get it there in that first instant. Maybe it's the second watch of the film, but you do start to notice the little things that are awry in the way that he is sort of preserved in aspic in yeah. those photographs presenting a different side of his character each time and in each one he's uncomfortable and i think that that is one of watkins great strengths that when you say he is a guy who makes fake documentaries and fake news real you might think that that his work is very crude in the way that you know found footage horror movies are often visually very crude but that's not the case at all I think he has always displayed a real precision to his image making and he has very strong opinions about what cinema should be. I mean, he has this idea of the monoform, which is that every TV series and every film that he sees is designed to distract and break thought with, you know, fast editing and loud music. And, you know, he's he's clearly right. thinking, because this yeah. is this is before MTV that he's saying this. He's yeah. clearly thinking about the rock movies that Privilege was released at the same time as. Yeah. So part of the reason why he ends up doing like eight-hour documentaries on the Paris Commune, it's not just self-indulgence. He genuinely thinks that in order to make a film about something radical, you have to make something that rejects as much of commercial cinema as possible. Yeah. And I think he's somebody who's got, it's, it's, I mean, it's a word that gets banded about, but visionary, mm. you know, because the, the, the pure essence of visionary is it's someone with a vision. And he's definitely got that, you know, I yeah. mean, we mentioned um, V for Vendetta, Alan Moore, and how uh, you could imagine this either being an influence on, that on what Alan Moore has written or sharing the same um, world as that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely sharing the same universe as that, as that, as that story. Um, And that's because I imagine he has, when he's creating a story, he follows a similar um, thought pattern or work ethic that somebody like Alan Moore might do. I can't imagine he just goes, right. This is a film about a pop star who is being manipulated by the government. So here we go. I imagine he's understood. I imagine he's created an, uh, uh, a valid backstory, a reason, an understanding, a past, a present, and a future about every single thing in that film that mm-hmm. we might never see. You know, and it's just ninety minutes long or whatever. So you're never going to see all of that, but it's there in his head as he's as he's making it. The same as Punishment Park. I think mm-hmm. there's there's a whole history and, you know, we might only be seeing um, in the case of this film, we might only be seeing Birmingham and London perhaps, but I imagine he he could probably tell you what was going on in Liverpool, what was going on in Glasgow, what was going on 
in Land's End at exactly those same points as well because he's very much somebody who just understands the whole landscape of what he's creating. And I think this is one of the reasons why he keeps coming back to this mock documentary form where one of the things that changes about storytelling when you're working in this style is that you don't necessarily have to set things up in the way that a traditional narrative film does. You don't have to start your story at the point where the trouble begins. You don't have to do all of these things. You can pitch your audience into the middle of a situation as he does here and say, right, keep up. You know, look at yeah, what's going yeah. on around you and work it out. Yeah, and the voice—I mean, the voiceovers help. The voiceovers are—I uh, uh, mean, people people criticise voiceovers an awful lot in films, and with valid reason because the voiceover is usually a good example of something got fucked up in the edit. Let's show yes. the voiceover on it. Yeah, or a sign of indulgence, like Quentin Tarantino. You know, here's a sixteen-hour hateful eight. It felt like sixteen hours. <laughs> uh, Suddenly, 14 hours in, I'll just throw a voiceover on top of it. Why? You know, <laughs> these choices. Yeah, I, I really me... love that. I am addicted to all 60s French films that he's probably ripping off there. So, yeah, that, that is probably true. It just, I, I, I don't mind Tarantino. There's a lot of Tarantino I like, but The Hateful Eight just really rubbed me up the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you're going to do a voiceover, try and do it and do it, you know from beginning yeah. to end, not just thing. But this, of course, is reportage, so there has to be a voiceover there. Mm. Um, and that does offer the audience a sort of guiding hand. It's it's sort of a way, a, a very easy shorthand way of saying, this is what's happening, you know. Mm. This is what he did next. This is what, you know, as if, as if it is a news report. Um, but like you say, it is very much a, a film that goes, keep up, you know. Yeah. Try and spot what again. It's like I said about the the photos of him. You might not spot him in the first the first um, go, or it might linger in the back of your head twenty minutes in. Go, oh yeah, he looks a bit off. But previously, um, so but it it is expecting a degree of intelligence from the viewer, which yeah doesn't always. Uh, it pay can off, go I wrong. Guess. It can go wrong. Yeah. I think. And again, if you like, we said if you're making a film at the height of the sixties. And you go, this is a film about music and fashion and where Britain is today. And it's got that pop star that you like who's just left Manfred Mann. You are going to expect a, a sort of swinging caper. Yeah. Um, and sit down and expect that and then get shown something completely differently. It might turn you off. You might be like, oh, I can't understand this. And you walk out in droves. Because Manfred Mann were not, you know, if, if and I, this is, going slightly forward in time, but if someone like Bowie appeared in a film like this, you could say, ah, I see what he's doing. You can see references to this in his work. You can see it in like quicksand or station to station that he's playing with the same themes here. But I don't want to say Paul Jones was like a blank canvas. I'm sure he understood what Watkins wanted of him, but the fact that Manfred Mann were not, you know, one of the artistic avant-garde. They were a blues rock band who had some catchy songs. There was no reason to suspect that Jones might have had something like this in the in him. That well, sort of makes it more resonant, I think. It does. I think I think I think it's twofold, isn't it? I think 
I can understand the reason why Jones wanted to do it. He just mm. left Man for Man because he said um, that the stress and pressure of, of that degree of fame was too much for him. So obviously you get a script like this and it's a troubled rock star who is uh, struggling under stress and pressure of fame. That's yeah. going to strike a chord with him. He's going to say, oh, yeah, well, I, 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 that's something I understand. I can bring some of that, my own personal experience, to this performance. Um, quite why you pick Paul Jones to play the role, again, I think goes back to um, what I said earlier about the fact that he will be able to sell that slightly asexual, mm. um, non-threatening uh transformation what what where he becomes for much of the re- for for the bulk of the film he's the he's the good boys and he's the altar yeah. boys the singing altar boys sort of thing uh so he can sell that bit i think that's why they'll cast him there you couldn't you couldn't say you couldn't cast mick jagger i think if you cast in a role like who, this who would played with these things in their music it would just be too much of a wink at the audience yeah you know what i mean yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you couldn't cast Cliff Richard because, mm. again, you know, it's too obvious, and yeah. there's no way you'd touch it with a barge pole because it would, <laughs> he would, he would say, you know, it was, uh, it was unfair to um, the church in in, in this country and, and people's religious practices. Again, like you said before about the rank organization, find yeah. immoral, which is just yeah. that's thrown me that really because it's like it, it, my disc of it has a 15 certificate but i can't remember whether that's because of the actual film or you know it has some of watkins's war themed shorts uh the Forgotten yeah there's Faces a very good um, soldier on it yeah the unknown soldier one and there's one about is it faces forgotten faces Fa- yeah. forgotten faces which is the hungarian uprising which is mm. very sort of like um shot on the on the hoof around is it around London? I think they shot it, and it—it's sort of—it looks. Re- it's a really interesting little short film there, mm. because I mean, you're asking people to—you're asking to be again. You're asking people to um, pretend they're in newsreel footage, and it's clearly not in Hungary because you know it's just a small yeah. film in, made in Britain. But you can believe it completely. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that one. Yeah. So I think that the 15th certificate must be because of them, because there is no space in Stephen Shorter's life for sex and drugs. You know, even the rock no, and roll I... becomes questionable after a while. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like you say, it's like you said before, and I hadn't thought of it, that perhaps the whole backstory of his some sort of aggressive uh, criminal past was just a fabrication to sort of get him on the radar of, of a young audience immediately and to um, not have him step out of the yeah. ranks of his fellow rock and roll musicians by being dead straight from the off, you know, mm. uh, that it is some sort of fabrication perhaps. Um, but that's, that's dispensed with almost immediately because then yeah. we're on like well this is the this is the tactic we've got for Stevens the next stage in Stevens career is to be Christian and to be a, a figurehead and a, a role model um so really if they say something's immoral it's it's immoral to suggest that we're all being manipulated 
And, you know, the fact that the film was effectively banned, that no one came out and said it was banned like they did with the war game, but when the big cinema chains are refusing to show it on moral grounds, you have to call that kind of a ban. That does yeah. prove Watkins's point pretty effectively about what this new craze of beat music is really masking. Yeah. It's a film that is it's so prophetic. It's so mm. relevant. I mean, when I watched it 10 years ago, I mean, we were at not the height of the Simon Cowell sort of uh, <laughs> media manipulation. Uh, but it was very strong back then. It was, yeah. yeah, I mean, we still had um, X Factor. We st- Britain's Got Talent, all those kind of things. We're still full on. And it was sort of like, well, they would guarantee they'll get, you know, um, attention and acclaim. You know, if you've appeared on Britain's Got Talent, that's it. You're set up, aren't you? Kind of Mm. thing. So that was very much um, there, and that is all in this this film, really, isn't it? It's it's a film about it's a film about sheep and shepherds, really, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. The Lord is our shepherd. Because I'd thought of that. (laughs) Thought of that. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Yeah. But it's interesting because when we've watched 60s rock films, we've even if we just take the episodes that we've done together, we've often observed that there is more cynicism in them than you would expect from a film trying to uh, exploit a big teenage craze. But I think with Peter Watkins and with Peter Whitehead's films as well, you see the limits of that. People are happy for the Beatles and the Dave Clark Five to make little satirical jabs at themselves in their movies. That's fine. That's great. The sort of systemic criticism that a film like Privilege or Peter Whitehead's The Fall is aiming for is very hard for people yeah. to listen to. This is an interesting one because I think we've I'm going to say two sort of polar opposites now, and I think that this is a sort of middle ground. And the interesting one is that we've, ta- we, me and you have tackled on this podcast have tackled all three of these. It's, mm. it's the Dave Clark Five film, yeah, whose name escapes me now. What was that one called? Catch, Catch me if, if you can. can. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's that. Then there's this mm. in the middle ground, and then on the other end is Jubilee. Mm. Yeah, because yeah. that's when it gets all dystopic and yeah, and quite intriguing. Uh, so and and a sort of like alternate Britain. Um, I could be, I could easily see if we were saying that um, this is sort of like the same world that V for Vendetta is in. I could easily see privilege so many years on being Jarman's Jubilee. Yeah, that's good actually. Yeah, I like that. I suppose the difference is is that there's a level of criticism of something new that is actually quite helpful to whatever phenomenon it is. If someone yeah. in the 60s says, I hate rock and roll because it's noisy and it's loud and uncouth, that's great. The rock industry loves that. That's what they want. Yeah. If you have something saying, I don't like rock music because I think it is fundamentally masking a democratic deficit in society because I think it's bread and circuses like Whitehead who I mentioned a bit back Peter Whitehead uh, literally thought that swinging London was a CIA plot that the CIA had 
realised that there was this groundswell of rebellion in a massively expanded teenage generation, thanks to the baby boom, and they wanted to funnel that hunger for change into, you know, what records do you listen to? What shoes are you wearing? That kind of thing. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Hmm. But you can't make that into a saleable film, you know, in the way that you can with some of the other complaints about rock. That's the problem with it. It's more interesting, but it's hard to market. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's it's a film, and then you you always run the risk of are you just you know are you just singing to the choir? It's yeah. are you preaching to the converted because if you're on that wavelength, then brilliant. But you're already on that wavelength. Yeah. What you need to do is maybe is to to try and you need to try and distract the sheep, don't you? You need the mm. sheep to understand the message, and sometimes that message is just too successful. Uh, to sort of like pull them away from. Um, And I think Watkins, you know, could have got the message to a broader audience by making more conventional films. But as we said earlier, he thought the structure of conventional films, like the style and the look and the plot structure they had, was part of the ideological problem he had with them. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's nowhere to go from there, is there? Because yeah. you're either prostituting yourself to make films that will find an audience, then you maybe you can take that audience with you. Mm. Uh, but obviously he wasn't prepared to do that. It's like, well, it's, you know, you're either on board with me straight away or not. Because yeah. I'm not about to sell my vision Yeah. when I'm criticising the very thing that, yeah, that's that's interesting, yeah. But again, you you run the risk of like you just you're not turning anybody on. You're just already finding people who have, have twigged that sort of sentiment. But in the long run, you'd have to say it worked out. I mean, I'm sure there were films that were commercially more successful than Privilege at the same time that are not as well remembered now. It has lasted. It does have this gorgeous BFI Blu-ray edition. People are still talking about it. So, you know, for all he didn't change the course of the 60s as maybe he wanted to, he had the last laugh. These films do hold up, I think. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had a look at his, uh, I had a look at my letterbox stats stats before and, um, He's such a big hitter with how I've rated him. There's they're usually about five stars, four stars. Yeah. You know, I've, like I said, I've not seen a huge amount of his work, um, but what I have seen, I've rated incredibly well. You know, I've not yeah. been disappointed. I mean, I have seen some reviews on Punishment Part that are like two stars. I'm like, what are you thinking? You know, (laughs) it does clear, you know, it clearly resonates with me is what I'm saying. It's it's clearly one that resonates with me. But having said that, I mean, I'm slightly going to contradict myself now, which is Mm. weird. It's like a doorknob comment and it would look like we're about to wrap up. And I'm like, yeah, hang on a minute. But yeah, it's, (laughs) (laughs) it's, um, no, because I'm sure if somebody would have seen the war game, mm. they would have reconsidered where they stand when it comes to something about nuclear war. I mean, I watched Threads is the film that made me join CND. Yeah. 
you know, that's the that was the clincher for me. I mean, not like yeah, I think we should have it. I don't. I'm not saying there's people out there going yes, I think we should have a nuclear war. You know, because well, I hope there isn't. <laughs> Although yeah. currently, uh, people say yeah. let's get rid of no let's have a no fly zone. Yeah, that that's a good idea. Do, do you know the weirdest theory I've heard about that? And it's one that I, I do quite like is that Zelensky, so somebody has said, I've seen said, Zelensky is asking for a no-fly zone because he realises it's unreasonable. So when he comes back to the table, like asking for the actual things he wants support with, they'll, people will be more ready to give him to them. And I thought, oh, fucking hell, yeah, because he used to be a comedian, and that's how comedians get everything through. You get your offensive sketch that you love through by making a super offensive sketch that you don't mind if they cut. It's a Johnny Spade thing again. It is. weird. It's the, you can have six bloodies. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'll let you have the Christ, but you've got to get rid of the fuck or whatever that's in in his script, isn't it? You know, it's that way of bartering. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I do. It is weird. I, 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 we're going to get a bit topical there, but it is. We're probably going to have to cut this out because it'll be like non-topical, or because the world will have ended. So we might as well say, yeah, it. yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, I'm trying to think what the the thing would be. I remember when o, when OJ Simpson was on trial for murder in the '90s, and uh, our English teacher, who never seemed to teach his English, great man Stephen Wells. <laughs> Would he, he, we would have whole lessons about the troubles, and I'm like, mm. we're not reading anything about Ireland, but he would just tell you about the troubles. Um, <laughs> then we, we had whole in, uh, lessons talking about OJ Simpson. One lesson was just talking about uh, the episode of Cracker to be a somebody. <laughs> wow, it's like, how good was Cracker last night? And we just talk about that for an hour, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I remember OJ Simpson, he said, he says, always think about what. Because over there could be a weird, strange place. I was trying to think of it on like contemporary grounds over here. So imagine John Barnes has just been arrested for murder, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, All right, okay, yeah. So I'm trying to do that now with Zelensky. It's like, imagine if Rory Bremner's your president all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and or... That's just, <laughs> I don't even want to consider that, you know. <laughs> or would it be like, because he was in that political sitcom, would it be like having Peter Capaldi as prime minister? Yeah, yeah, could be, could be, yeah, yeah. Or Chris Addison, oh, Jesus, <laughs> heaven help us. <laughs> it is one of those things, though, isn't it? Where, when this started, I remember a lot of people on, on Twitter were saying, oh, which, which comedian, which British comedian would you want as your prime minister? And you thought, have we not learned our fucking lesson about this? <laughs> We had one. That's it. It's the fucking rancid, rapey bag of custard that we've currently got. Ah. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we may cut this, listeners, uh, viewers, because uh, it may not be topical anymore. We may be living in Peter Watkins' war game, as opposed to <laughs> as opposed to privilege. But yeah, the point still stands. I think. <sighs> I don't, I don't think anybody's pro-nuclear war, but I think mm. the pro-nuclear weapons. But yeah. I think films like War Game and Threads make you reconsider nuclear weapons, and that's what I certainly took from Threads. Yeah, and I do remember seeing War Game when it was um, finally lifted 
Was it about 1985 was Wargame? That sounds about right. Yeah, it was a decades-long ban, I remember that. See, this is how fucked up my family were. I'm like six years old, and (laughs) my dad decides he wants to watch Wargame on BBC Two one night, and I had to sit and watch it with him. (laughs) (laughs) So a way to frighten the light. This is why I am what I am, unfortunately. (laughs) You know that that go-to phrase anybody says when when you... we say the unthinkable or you say the thing that's made everybody go Ooh, and you go i'm sorry i don't know why i'm like this i do know why i'm like this <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that's um yeah i think there are films don't don't be put off is what i'm trying to say don't be thinking oh no i've got to be in the right i've got to be off a certain mindset to watch these films yeah. even though i've just said that that you know it will click with people who are on that mindset i do still think that these are films with great merit that make you think well i think um, what we're talking about is the difference between whether yeah, i think can... i've got myself in a bit of a you talk about a tangle it, yeah i think it is hard to market these films or to yes. people of a different mindset yeah. but i think the films themselves if you sit down and watch them uh, incredibly persuasive and interesting, and I think that's one of the reasons why the war, it, it, the primary reason why the war game was banned, because the BBC at that time had an astonishing chunk of the viewing public. Yeah. You know, for many people, there would not be anything else on television they'd be interested in watching, so they might watch this thing, and as a sort of semi-captive audience they would be swept along with it because it is a very oh, good yeah. piece of filmmaking. I mean, we forget, don't we, that you're talking about 20 million viewers Yeah, would have got, would have sat and watched that that night if it went out, you know. Um, even in the 80s on a BBC Two, you'd, you'd be looking at 7 million viewers, 8 million viewers. I mean, there's programs nothing like, like it now. No, programmes like Strictly Now, would be lucky to get 6 million viewers. And that's like the big flagship BBC program. You know, yeah. it's just the way that the landscape has changed completely. It's so fascinating. Um, but you were, you were just in the 60s, if that went out in the 60s, you've only got BBC One, ITV, potentially BBC Two had just started. Yeah, I was so just trying to three remember. Channels. Yeah, had BBC Two started at this point? I don't know. You've only really got three channels. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> that's you can divvy that up at like 20 million watching BBC One, 20 million watching ITV, 20 million watching BBC Two. And that just about makes up the yeah. public, the population of the country, really. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like um, shit. It, it's going back to Harold Wilson. Ready, Christ, Bernie, have a look at this. It's. Shit, don't let them know that's what happens if we have a nuclear war. You know? mm. <laughs> because everybody will be slitting the wrist straight away. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Which is then we saw 20 years later when things finally relaxed and that shit, that that could be shown. But it was being shown along, alongside um, Threads and Raymond Briggs' When the Wind Blows, which mm. is a, a brilliant... Um, dissection of the propaganda that a certain generation um believed in or was fed regarding war uh literally just skewered in one film that you know 
there are no survivors you know you can't just paint your windows white and sit under a table and wait till it all blows over you know it's um but that that at the time when things were really hot in the 60s that was just you just couldn't contemplate saying no it's game over this happens it's game over yeah because we just had you know the cuban missile crisis was just two or three years in the past exactly yeah yeah yeah. and that was done i mean that scared a lot of people but it was still done on this level where people were discussing it and in terms of is there going to be a nuclear war and you think well no i mean there's there might be some nuclear explosions but i think it would be optimistic to say we'll get as far as a war yeah yeah it's it's still a phrase that gets used though isn't it nuclear war as if yeah like you say as if it's a a story of two combatants and uh, a period of time a period of time is what four minutes if you're lucky you know (laughs) oh man now i'm just remembering that great beyond the fringe line where uh peter cook has haveled mcmillan has to defend the four minute warnings some people who think this is not enough time to prepare for a nuclear attack but i will remind you there are some people in this great country of ours who could run a mile in four minutes (laughs) Which is the kind of shit Johnson would say now as well, isn't it? Just pull it back to England. Prevail onward. It's just bullshit, isn't it? Yeah. Are you aware but, that um, this whole war is about pronouns, by the way? I feel like there's been about three government ministers who made that fairly central to their messaging that the war is fundamentally about pronouns. Yeah. Let's trust this will, the war in Ukraine will put an end to pronouns and statues. I would like to think so, Liz, but you're still going to be fucking talking at the end of it. Ridiculous, isn't it? And then the other story that we were just saying in about four minutes, we apparently don't have a warning system. I didn't so, see that one. Yeah, apparently we don't ah. have a warning system. Don't know what happened there. Perhaps we just, perhaps it's like a Netflix subscription. We just <laughs> let it lapse or something. Perhaps they sold it to Capita. Maybe that's it. <laughs> Perhaps it was the Big Ben bongs. There was going to be a different bong. <laughs> and now that they're still working on Big Ben, we're fucked. You know, <laughs> I'm at a really big thing. Cheerful nihilism about this. Like, I just, yeah, we're, we're doomed and I'm laughing. What can you <laughs> do? Else, I don't know. Nothing else to do, isn't yeah. it? Nothing else to do. Well, you could piss yourself like that woman in threads. Oh, don't worry, I'm planning to. So I'm definitely doing that. That, that reminds me of um, a wonderful sketch in uh, Not the Nine O'Clock News with uh, Richard Davis, the Welsh actor, who was in um, Delta and the Bannerman. He's, he runs oh, the yeah. holiday camp. Yeah. He's playing like a, a Welsh Labour MP and they're doing question time. And then they get the four-minute warning through. And they, t- they go, oh, so they've, they've launched the missiles. We go over to you. You know, what, what's his opinion? <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to come up with something on the spot. And he goes, at times like this, I often think, what would Nave Bevan do? And I'm fairly certain he'd have shat his pants. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I think before this becomes one. even more of us just quoting our favourite comedy lines at each other, uh, we should wrap up for this week. Very possibly. <laughs> Listeners, 
if you've enjoyed this, uh, you can get exclusive bonus episodes at our Patreon, uh, including uh, ones with you, Mark, on viewing Jerry by Molly Deneen and uh, Croc Gold by Julian Temple. Some great stuff there. Yeah. 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 They're good. Uh, But... Until... I'm not sorry. I'm like Stephen Short to trying to sell something. I've, I've got nothing and just sort of look pained in the picture. Just... Apples are good, aren't they, Mark? We're all right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. like apples. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but until next week, uh, that's been your lot from Pop Screen. I've been Graham. And I've been Mark, and it's been a privilege. Hey. <laughs> That's what you come to me for. That's what you come to me for, isn't it?